Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Professor Rudolf Wiesner, who works at the University of Kern and is associated with CCAT Cologne. He studies mitochondrial aging using mouse models, and he is also one of the few people in the world who specifically focuses on the accumulation of age-related mitochondrial DNA deletion. This topic makes me feel quite nostalgic, as it was one of the first aging theories that I researched and obsessed over when I was getting into biogerontology. Hope you enjoyed the discussion we had. If it is too technical, do check out the show notes first, as this might be helpful. It's great to have you today on the Vitador Aging Science Podcast. Thanks for coming. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure because I really love mitochondria and I love mitochondria aging. And I used to work a little bit on mitochondrial DNA related things. So I'm happy to, to talk to you. Okay. But okay, it was a while ago, so I hope I won't say any overly stupid things. Uh, yeah. All right. So, um, I mean, today we will just talk, we will talk about your research, mitochondrial aging in general, and especially the aging of the mitochondrial genome. And I think there's a lot to talk about and we'll just scratch the surface, but uh, I think it's an important discussion to have. And I mean, before we delve into mitochondria, I just want to ask you a couple of things about um, Cologne and your life as a scientist. So the, what do you think about Cologne as a place to do aging research? Well, I mean, we were lucky enough to have been funded since about 15 years by the federal government and have built up a, a center. And it's certainly the biggest center in Germany, maybe it's one of the biggest centers dealing with aging research in, uh, in, in Europe. It's called CCAT. It's a, a terrible, terrible abbreviation. I always forget what it stands for. It has something to do with Cologne and Center and Excellence and Aging-Related Diseases. And it's the university, the, the university clinic. And as a Max Planck Institute, the Max Planck Society had decided to start an institute dealing with the biology of aging. And this came together when the federal government decided to 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 put a lot of money into collaborative networks on whatever subject. And so Cologne was lucky enough to have already a nucleus. And then together with this Max Planck Institute on Aging, we, we won the prize. And now we have also a beautiful building here. And I think we are really a large community. I gave a, sh a short talk to lay people yesterday. And I just saw that we have 75 uh, PIs. 73, I think, yes, 44 professors and uh, 29 uh, young young research leaders. So it's uh, more than 70 independent groups in three or four institutions, buildings, which are dealing with, uh, with this subject, with aging-related diseases. And the people working on more uh, basic things uh, on the biology of aging uh, in general, why? do organisms age. And we have all the organisms here. We have C. elegans and uh, Drosophila and, of course, mice and rats. And and uh, we also have uh, this naked, naked mole uh, since a few uh, 
a few years, Jane Resnick has joined and she, she has built up a colony of this amazing animal which lives 10 times longer as it should. And Cologne is a very nice city, so students, uh, a very lovely student city. It's a bit dirty. It's a bit, uh, it's called the most northern city of South Italy, but that's what the, uh, that's what the, the, the atmosphere is. People are very relaxed and it's nice. It's nice to live here. Yeah, Cologne is a great place to visit for me. I, I always enjoy being there. I, I recall when you come with the train, the train station that's in the city center and it's like next to the Cologne Cathedral and the view is amazing. It's just amazing, yeah, all right. Yeah, and uh, I think your next question would be, is Germany a good place for researchers? I say yes, I, I would say yes. The, the salary is, is very good. I mean, I, I know some of my postdocs went to other countries, so they always cry a bit when they remember what they got as a postdoc here. Of course, you have to relate it to expenses, but still I think it's easier to live with a postdoc and a graduate PhD uh, uh, stipend uh, here than in other countries. And uh, <clears throat> you have to choose, if you choose a good group, I think it's as good as uh, England, USA, uh, France. Uh, well, yeah, maybe that's what that's where people go, or Singapore, which I do not know, but it seems to be a very thriving place as well. Right. So, so it's a good place to work. And the question for me is, um, like, when I was still in Austria, we had like the, the topic, I think in German, they call it like Kettenverträge, that you have like, as a scientist or as a postdoc, you're hired on like relatively short term contracts. And it's always so, somewhat precarious, and you don't know your future. Uh, is this also still a problem in Germany? And I heard there was like recently, they tried to pass a law to kind of improve the situation, right? That's right. Well, from my viewpoint, I'm sorry, I wouldn't call it improve the situation. I think the, the, the funding period of our main funding agency, Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, DFG, is three years, which is a bit ridiculous because in 2023, you can't do a PhD in three years. So I hope they talk about this a lot already and will extend it to four years. So that would be four years. And so you can ask for a PhD salary or you can ask for a postdoc salary for, for uh, four years. You have three years and maybe you have some, some money from the Institute. And so uh, this famous 12 years rule means that you cannot stay longer than 12 years paid by a university or a Max Planck Institute or whatever. And of course, this is kind of abusing people, but... The problem is if we would change that, if the government wants to change that to be more fair, but then all the positions would be filled with people for the next 20 years. So what about the next generation? What about those people who are not in their master's class? They will have no chance to become a prof. Uh, of course, the obvious solution would be to generate more positions at the universities, which would be utterly necessary because the the relationship between professors and and students are uh, outrageously bad i mean in all the big uh, universities which we would like to copy um, using this word at center of excellence um, it's what what we do is ridiculous so we need a lot of more positions and if the government would give us more money to have more positions then then the problem would be solved. But we also don't have enough positions in uh, uh, patient care. 
and we don't have enough uh, positions for uh, children care and for uh, aging people care. So there's a lack of money everywhere, like in every country. But the problem definitely cannot be solved. I don't think there's any solution. I think this 12 years rule is kind of fair. So it means that when you, let's do your, do your master's, at, you finish your master's at 24, and then you have 12 years, and then you're 36, which means that in the beginning of your 30s, and maybe in your second postdoc phase, you should start to think about what you're going to do. You should say, should I take the risk, uh, or should I now leave university, leave academia, and do something else? And that's, I don't think this is exploitation. I think there's simply no other solution. Uh, it's very easy to say that if you're lucky enough to have catched one of these professors, professors' positions, but there is no other way because if we would, uh, if we would give, uh, give to these people who, who now say we have to change that again, then for the next 20 or 30 years, 30 years, I mean, if, if now all the people who are now postdocs become permanent, uh, they are mid-30s mid and they have to work until their mid-60s. In Germany, you have to work until you're 67 or 68, depending on when you're born. So for the next 30 years, no open positions for nobody. And that's impossible because uh, it's, it's, it's unfair for the, again, for the next generation. And also, uh, it would be a waste of talents. So am I understanding this correctly of the current rule? You can stay at a single university for 12 years after finishing your master's or at any university? In any university, any university, any Max Planck Institute. And if you change your subject completely, then you start you start counting news. So what you cannot do, you, I cannot hire someone and uh, working on the same things for 15 years uh, and just giving it different uh, a different name. But in fact, the person is working always on the same question: mitochondrial DNA deletions in our mouse model. Right. Yeah, I don't know how this is how, whether this is better. I think it's better in the United States because mm -hmm. there you have the college system. So if you are not really successful in academia, you can always be a professor at a college. But we don't have colleges here. We have high school, and high school goes until you are eighteen or nineteen, and then you start university. So there's nothing in between. So after those twelve years, you can leave academia, become admin or professor. Like, are, are these the options, or yeah, or like go to a different country, or go to a different country, right? Uh, so there are very, very few permanent non-professors positions. Large institutes always have one senior postdoc, which is meant to keep the keep the methods and keep the keep the, the, the lab running, a project manager. But yeah. Right. I understand we can't keep everyone, but I assume having a, a few more of those senior permanent positions would, would be good. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, there are no easy solutions. That's uh, always a trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so apart from that, well, let's talk about the science. So what I'm curious about, looking at mitochondria, there have been a lot of breakthroughs recently in aging research in general, but not that much when it comes to aging of mitochondria. What do you think about this? Why is that? And what are your favorite breakthroughs of the last 10 years? I was thinking, I was thinking a lot about this question. And you're right, so break, breakthroughs are really very, very rare, right? But just today, just today at our university website, uh, a paper is advertised of a group in uh, here in Cologne 
common effort of CCAT and the Max Planck Institute of Aging, and it's published in Nature. The senior author is Andreas Bayer with B-E-Y-E-R, Bayer. He's a, a bioinformatician, and they have they they show that the the trans the transcription in the in the nucleus becomes more and more sloppy, and I think this has to be. I know I'm I'm surprised that they have it in nature because transcriptional noise increasing in aging due to whatever mechanisms, point mutations in non-coding regions, point mutations in promoter regions, making it too many too much too many transcripts, not enough transcripts, imbalance of transcripts. This has been around for a while. But not so much, and so I would think this this just came to my mind. So probably this is one of the th big things out of the outside of the mitochondria field, transcriptional noise. I'm not so much a fan of proteostasis, although a lot of people are working on proteostasis because, of course, we have a lot of problems uh, with with protein clumping proteins in some cell types. For example, in my aging skin here, I have these yellow uh, dots, which are definitely protein clumps in old keratinocytes and, and other cells. But uh, I don't think that this is a, a, a problem in, in many of our cell types. So of course, there are Levy bodies in, uh, in, in, in Parkinson's and there is a tauopathies in Alzheimer's, but I've never seen uh, uh, these protein clumps in muscle or in heart. And these organs also contribute, the, the deterioration of these uh, organs contribute very, very much to aging. So. I think it's a bit overestimated proteostasis, and lots of has, lot of studies have been done in in C. elegans, for example. And in mitochondria research, well, I mean, you are you are right. So there's really no no big breakthrough, and I think it's one of the big biggest problems is always that we cannot modulate mitochondrial DNA. That all the genetic tools uh, we can use to to play with the, with nuclear genes, we can't uh, with the we can't in the mitochondria, although you ask, you will ask this later, the uh, modification uh, done with talanes and zinc fingers, uh, work by uh, Carlos Moraes and Michal Minchuk in Cambridge and Carlos in Florida, uh, start to offer new uh, new rule, new new ways of, of approaching this uh, this problem, but I think all the work on quality control, that uh, quality quality control. Uh, of the mitochondria at certain levels, pro proteases inside and uh, uh, repair mitochondrial DNA repair enzymes. They are not absent, as many textbooks say, but there are repair enzymes. There's repair in the in the mitochondria, <clears throat> and then of course mitophagy and autophagy and all kinds of fat phagy. And then my my postdoc David Plamatinus uh, published a paper very recently in Nature Communications where he. If he found an, uh, a mechanism where really mutated uh, nucleoids with mutated mitochondrial DNA are selectively uh, extracted from mitochondria, and I think this is a very exciting new pathway. MDVs, mitochondria-derived vesicles, uh, are another another pathway. So there are many pathways that cells take care. Um, so cells are using to take care of their mitochondria. The big question, which nobody knows, is why do these pathways start to not work anymore at some point? I mean, so many people start with uh, the introduction, uh, the proteasome activity goes down with aging. Yeah, but why? 
my only explanation would be that the expression of, of proteasome subunits in the nucleus start to be imbalanced because it has to be some irreversible damage. Yeah. I, I like the point that you made about the uh, tissue-specific changes. I think this is something we don't emphasize enough. We have sometimes the hallmarks of aging, right? It's a view on a cellular level and on the average tissue. But in reality, yeah. aging is very tissue-specific, especially for mitochondria, right? Um, yeah. Maybe you can uh, tell us more like how different tissues age, how the mitochondria change in different tissues, right? Because it's not the same across the board. Well, for, for example, Parkinson's disease, uh, idiopathic Parkinson's disease, which well, idiopathic is one of these uh, words medic doctors, medicines like to use. Uh, it means nothing because it just means we have no idea what it, what it comes with, but it sounds complicated. So then the patient is happy if the doctor says you have idiopathic Parkinson's. Uh, I think I strongly believe that a, a, a large part of uh, of these idiopathic cases will be a mitochondrial disease. Of course, alpha synuclein and alpha synuclein mild mutations and maybe changes in alpha synuclein expression may be very very important for uh, uh, changing the balance of this very sticky protein. But in all the reviews, you see mitochondria, alpha synuclein, and Parkinson's or the triangles, or they, they they interact somehow. And um, yeah, in, 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 in dopaminergic neurons of the brain, uh, you have this, you have dopamine metabolism. And you also mentioned somewhere we have published a paper in, in, in the adrenal gland, the adrenal medulla. And if you look at this paper, which is, of course is not quoted a lot because people think who the, hell, who the hell cares about adrenal medulla. But if you look at these pictures, which we made, I mean, the, the adrenal medulla of an, of an, uh, of a one-year-old mouse looks like you have done something, you have completely poisoned it. I mean, it's full of COX-deficient cells just as by natural aging. So this is the worst, the worst deterioration I've ever seen. Even worse than the famous colon, colon crypts, uh, described it by the Newcastle group. So the colon, this is also seems to be a hot spot, and I have no idea why, why these colon crypt stem cells uh, have mutation, accumulate mutations. Maybe it's all the strange metabolites produced by gut bacteria or whatever. Or maybe this is a very mutagenic environment. And uh, my, these, these stem cells just divide and produce epithelial cells. And so obviously they don't have much problems. I don't know whether I always wanted to do a functional uh, essay on, 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 on humans uh, because you can you do colon, colonoscopy regularly in old, in old people, but it's very difficult to set up a functional assay and see whether this correlates with uh, with these uh, defective uh, colonic crypts. So these are two hotspots, and uh, sorry, I, I, I got overwhelmed. So catecholamine, catecholamine metabolism is a disaster because uh, when catecholamines are degraded and cells which produce catecholamines also degrade them at the same time, uh, there's turnover, then you produce a lot of super reactive species. And these super reactive species are obviously extremely mutagenic for mitochondrial DNA. So that would be a tissue which is super vulnerable, dopaminergic neurons, probably also other catecholaminergic neurons in the regions in the brain. And as a beautiful example, uh, the adrenal medulla. So just to explain the basics here, so they accumulate COX-deficient cells. Those are cells that do not express certain mitochondrial proteins. Right. 
right? Which mean, which then means they have a they they have a defect of in mitochondrial DNA. Yeah, it's a beautiful marker of aging. It's very visual, yeah. and you can measure it in certain tissues. And some show more, yeah. some show less of this. Yeah, it's a very very elegant method introduced by a New York pathologist in the eighties, whatever. And uh, it's it's a very simple method, and you can uh, yeah, you can really get this mosaic. That many that so many tissues are a mosaic with single cells with super high levels of deletions uh, and super high levels of of dysfunctional mitochondria, which doesn't disturb the liver, for example, or it doesn't disturb the kidney because if a liver cell doesn't work well, well then the neighbors do the job. But if you if if you have cells in the heart which don't propagate the action potential properly and don't contract properly, then the whole organ doesn't work. And the same with a muscle or a, or a nerve cell, which is sitting in a, in a nervous circuit, which has to do a certain job properly. Otherwise, the whole circuit doesn't work. So all cells which interact with each other uh, are very much vulnerable to uh, all, all tissues where cells need to interact to make the whole tissue work, are very vulnerable if single cells don't work properly. And what happens inside the cell to cause the expression deficit in COX? Well, in my opinion, it's um, there's more evidence that there are mitochondrial DNA deletions. And uh, it, it, don't ask me about the, the, the mechanism. I'm not a molecular biologist. I find... The 3D, 3D structure of, my, of, of, the, of replicating DNA I, it really doesn't work in my head. So you have to ask people like Maria Falkenberg or Klaus Gustafsson, and people really are being professional uh, molecular biologists working on the replication machinery. But I think there are these ideas that you have replication errors and uh, 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 replication errors, and then these replication errors will uh, will lead to uh, to deletions, and then these lesions will then clonally accumulate due to uh, the laws of mathemat mathematics, stochastic. And then after a while, and that's why all this happens uh, very slow, then after a while you get, uh, then a, a tissue accumulates uh, more deleted molecules than wild type, and you have this threshold, and then mitochondrial dysfunction uh, results, and then this work doesn't this this cell, this single cell, doesn't do its job properly anymore. So you you could say this is one of the mitochondrial aging theories, and it's also one that I like a lot, right? But there are also others. I'm wondering what is your opinion compared to, for example, the classical mitochondrial free radical theory. What do you think about this, and how does it compare with this um, DNA damage based theory? I like the, the the free radical theory because it, I think it was the first uh, really serious theory, and so uh, you were you were allowed to do serious aging research. Uh, serious meaning not trying to sell pills or or creams to people and make money with it. But I think that the, the free radical theory has a lot of evidence. Uh, there's a lot of counter evidence. I, I think it's more or less dead. So the uh, Jim Stewart, uh, who was here at the Max Planck Institute with Nils Joran Larsson, and uh, Jim is now in Newcastle, and Nils Joran Larsson is back in Stockholm. They have a beautiful paper where they show that uh, you would predict uh, that you would always have, if free radicals are responsible for uh, for for point mutations, then you have uh, then eight oxog producing from making guanine, oxidizing it to eight oxog. 
would be the major uh, chemically. It, this would be the major modification. And then in the next round of replication, this G, GC pair would then be replaced by an AT pair. And this is not what you find. You don't find a selective accumulation uh, of AT, of GC to AT pairs. And if you, if you do single cell analysis, you see that uh, single cells contain their own, we call them private mutation. Again, now I'm talking about deletions. There's not so much work done on point mutations. Each cell has its own deletion, which has 10 years ago occurred during a replication error and which then has clonally expanded. And if you, if the, the free radical theory would predict that you have a, a ra should be random and not single cell specific. So I think it's more or less dead. And anti-radicals, anti uh, antioxidants have never done a good job to to uh, to work and the cell is one also has to keep in mind that the cell is really packed with antioxidants. I mean, you have uh, glutathione in millimolar concentration, millimolar concentrations. ATP is five millimolar, and you have about two to three millimolar of of glutathione to the and also inside of the mitochondria, and then all the enzymes uh, which uh, detoxify uh, free radicals. So uh, I don't. I think free radicals are there and they are produced and they can do something. They can also produce mutations when they are in close proximity to the to the DNA, but not this cannot be the major thing because again there are so many antioxidants. Yeah. So this fear is not particularly popular anymore. The classic um, free radical theories for obvious reasons. So there's a lot of evidence against them and. You were mentioning the point mutation. Is this, I'm not sure if I'm recalling correctly, like that age-related point mutation patterns are not really consistent with the idea of free radical damage. Is this mm -hmm. like the interpretation here? Yes. Yes. So what causes then point mutations? Is this known? Is this also like replication issues? Yeah. We know that mitochondrial, that this polymerase, although it, it does have this uh, an exonuclease activity and checks uh, what it has been doing, and the famous mutator mouse uh, is a mouse where this exonuclease is uh, modified and doesn't work properly. But we know, and this is in every textbook, and I think it's, it's right, not everything which is a textbook is right, but this is right, that uh, mutation rate is a lot higher in mitochondrial DNA than in the nuclear genome, which is obviously due to the fact that uh, mitochondrial the polymerase is not doing, it's not as as uh, how you call it, the fidelity is not as good as the in, in, in the nucleus, and of and we do have less repair systems. And obviously, it's a little bit philosophical. The, the reason for this is because we have thousands of copies in in every cell. So obviously, the, it's not necessary to be so careful. While you only have two copies of each gene in the nucleus, so you have to be careful too always replicate it uh, properly during each uh, cell division. And, and, and mitochondrial DNA replicates all the time, also in non-dividing cells. Well, in non-dividing cells, the nucleus is happy and and somebody working on mitochondrial nuclear DNA damage, forgot who was this, that the most, the most dangerous thing for, for, for your nuclear DNA, uh, what you can do is, is, is dividing. Division, cell division is the most risky thing. 
of course UVB, but UVB is that's skin keratinocytes. That's it, bingo. So UVB never reaches the liver or the muscle or the heart. So last I recall, I think also the deletion field, it was more going towards the idea that it's replication that causes an initial deletion rather than ROS. Right. Yeah. And But of course, there are also complex mechanisms, right? Once you have a deletion, you can ask, why does it expand? Why do we have these so-called clonal stretches of tissues that have the same kind of deletion, right? Maybe you can talk a little bit why you think that happens. Oh, that's very bad. I'm, I'm very bad in, I'm also very, I'm very bad in molecular biology and I'm also very bad in mathematics. So I only know the three uh, basic rules, addition, subtraction, division, and oh, that's four. That's even four, four basic rules. But uh, uh, so I cannot, I cannot follow the mathematics, but I have here, I uh, prepared this. Nick, uh, Nick Jones uh, from, from London has a very, very nice paper in PNAS and uh, very recently, uh, and it's called Insalata. The first, first author is Insalata, like uh, in salad, Insalata. And it's called Stochastic Survival of the Densest and mitochondrial DNA clonal expansion in aging. And you should, everybody who's interested should read this because it also very nice summarizes what people think about clonal expansion. But again, this is, Nick is another biologist. He's a mathematician. And this is completely over my abilities to, to follow the and judge whether this is true or not. But we do we do see the same when we use our 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 twinkle, our mutated twinkle, which we express and which we are able to express in various cell types by a pre-lock system. So in contrast to this other deleter twinkle mouse by anusoomalinen, which is a transgene which expresses the deleter helicase in every cell of the body. We choose uh, 10 years ago, 12, 12 years ago, we choose to make a mouse where we can express it, uh, overexpress it in any in the tissue of our of our choice. And so we have now made, I think, about half a dozen of mice in muscle and heart, and cartilage in epidermis, in the dermis, and B cells, and and we also, when we do single cell analysis, which for example we did in the in in, in the heart, we also see this private mutations. So a cell does, it's a rare event, and then it must be clonal expansion. Of course, there are these theories that uh, the crippled mitochondria hypothesis, a famous good old Giuseppe Attardi, he, he proposed that, that mitochondria, which don't work properly, get signals, come on, multiply and uh, grow. Uh, you are not doing the job properly because that's what mitochondria do in some tissues, but only in very few tissues, in muscle. If you train your muscle and make uh, increase the energy demand of your muscle, then you, you stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. And if you stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis, then you may unfortunately tell those mitochondria which are the worst to grow faster, to, to, to become better, which is, of course, then a futile effort because they, they have uh, mutated mitochondrial DNA. So this is the crippled mitochondria hypothesis uh, postulated by Giuseppe Artardi, the godfather of mitochondrial DNA transcription and replication and cybrids. So that's very interesting. Um, so we worked on a variation on this, or I was involved in a project in Newcastle where they studied exactly this phenomenon in 
muscle mitochondria, whereas you say the idea is that if you have dysfunctional mitochondria, these might kind of signal back to the nucleus that the cell needs more mitochondria. And then the localized population that has the mutation, or in this case, deletion, right, it will be preferentially amplified. It's a beautiful model. I know the paper, I know the paper. so which, which, which is, who is the core, the first author on that paper? It was Amy Vincent. Yeah, yeah, it's Amy, it's Amy Vincent's paper, right, yeah. Yeah, of course I know it, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's what happens in muscle. And you have like this, now this twinkle mutator mouse, and you can in a way now probe for each tissue what will be the outcome of uh, of this twinkle mutant phenotype, right? Right. So, so we have expressed it now in muscle, and in, for example, <clears throat> interesting enough, in muscle we see no phenotype because muscle obviously can tolerate these deletions. We see a lot of deletions. Also, it's it's muscle fiber specific, so we see more deletions in white fibers with few mitochondria and much less deletions in red muscle with a lot of mitochondria, which created our the idea that those muscles which are dependent on mitochondria take care better of them. So obviously there's much higher turnover there and uh, all these quality control mechanisms are uh, working better in those cells which urgently need their mitochondria, while the fast twitch fibers which have a lot of glycogen and which have uh, which which have a lot of glycolytic enzymes, they can spare their mitochondria because then say okay then we then we produce lactate and just expel it into the blood and that's fine. And uh, only when we when we express then this twinkle specifically in uh, in muscle satellite cells, then we get uh, a pro then then we cause a problem and so maybe sarcopenia of old age is not due to accumulation of mitochondrial DNA deletions in the differentiated muscle, but due to a, a rundown of, uh, of good, good mitochondria in the satellite cells. And you do have very slow, and that's why everything's going on so slow, uh, very slow regeneration all the time. So every time you exercise a bit too harsh you damage your muscle a bit and then these muscle satellite cells are recruited so this is not pathological that's physiology you don't have really to have severe muscle damage to to recruit them and this is the this is i'm i'm <clears throat> officially i'm retired since uh, since once one month but i can i will work for, uh, longer I'm allowed to work longer for at least another year. And so this is the last project we're doing now. We're studying uh, quality control in muscle satellite cells using our, our twinkle mouse, our helicase mouse, our mutated helicase, which produces deletions. That's a very interesting project. I think I was reading some preliminary data from this, or at least a publication. So I had the impression, I think, as you were saying, so the progenitor expands to repair damage, right? And then you would have... Uh, a stretch of these uh, Cox deficient expanded progenitors turning into muscle, right? That doesn't sound good. Right. That's not good because I mean, a muscle is a chain, right? It's a chain of, of, of segments. And if one segment doesn't work properly, then the whole muscle fiber doesn't work properly because it's like a chain. The weakest, the weakest part, the weakest part of a chain determines how much weight you can put on the chain. And that's the same with force, force development in, in, in a muscle fiber. So that, that's that's one of the of the tissues where this mosaic is really really plays a great role, and 
that's also, I mean, in the beginning when people were just homogenizing tissues and measuring all kinds of mitochondrial parameters, whatever mass or enzyme activity or whatever, and then they always found this 10%, 15% decrease comparing old versus young. And so then the rest of the scientific community said, come on, this is bullshit, mitochondrial dysfunction in aging, this can't, this can't be. Uh, this can't be really important, and that's why the reason was that they simply, simply this mosaic has 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 been overlooked. So you just dilute the few uh, defective cells with the healthy cells, and in a homogenate, you don't see you don't see anything, which is of course a pain in the neck because now you have to do everything by laser dissection and everything by microscopy, and you cannot do classic biochemistry and classic molecular biology. But that's how it is. Right maybe i can ask a critical question here so what is your opinion you have you have this twinkle mouse so in how far is it a model of mitochondrial human disease rather than mitochondrial aging in humans like do you think it can represent both as a model well i would say mitochondrial disease uh, due to deletions is as a human model for aging. I think what, what happens in those patients uh, very fast because they have inherited deleted copies from the oocyte. That's the, for example, the common deletion. Or if they have, since they have uh, mutations in, uh, in nuclear genes for encoding maintenance proteins of the mitochondrial DNA, uh, all the symptoms which which you have there, you have muscle problems, you have uh, neurological problems, you have all the same. You have the same problems like 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 aging. So my, our mouse is not a good is not a good model uh, because it's 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 it doesn't express it in every in every tissue. But we decided we made a decision at that time because our. Our uh, mutation is much is, is the is the the most severe causes the most severe damage in humans. That's why we choose this mutation. It's a point mutation, K three hundred twenty E, and this is the at that point when we constructed the mouse, uh, this was the most severe mutation in uh, mitochondrial DNA maintenance protein, leading to the most severe defect. So that's why we choose this uh, this mutation, and then we decided. Let's not do it whole body because we also were afraid if we do it whole body that it would be embryonic lethal. Let's study each tissue on its own, which of course is unphysiological because then we miss tissue-tissue interactions. But I mean, in the, in the first paper, we have beautiful arrhythmia in the heart. So we counted the blue cells, and of course, the numbers are not really, uh, we cannot guarantee whether this number is right, because maybe we have missed cells with mitochondrial dysfunction, which are not blue enough, uh, according to that staining procedure. But what we say is that one in 200, if, if one out of 200 heart muscle cells has a severe mitochondrial defect, we do severe arrhythmias in vivo. So the animals are free, free running, free living, and you do telemetry and you record the electrocardiograms <clears throat> and you can see they have arrhythmias. And these mice are then 18 months. So the postdoc Olivier Bavis, he got really nervous. He got really nervous during this project. And at 12 months, when you have only one in 100 cells, you have no arrhythmia. So you have to surpass a certain, a certain threshold of uh, defective cells, and then you get arrhythmia. And don't ask me how this, co how, how this causes arrhythmia, 
That's what all the cardiologists ask me. Uh, for this, we have to we, we have to identify these cells, and we only can identify them on cryosections with this blue uh, blue uh, blue staining, and then we would have to do serial sections and now characterize the cells just using immunohistochemical methods, check their uh, ion channel expression and all these things which are involved in action potential generation. And we are trying this, but it's it's difficult. We cannot isolate these cells because we when we when we digest the, the heart, we lose these cells. They are probably very, very sensitive and they just die. So all, everything has to be made in situ, which really makes it makes this mosaic a pain in the neck to to work on. We, we're doing it with humans and we have uh, uh, we get uh, atria from from patients uh, uh, from surgery, and we have very nice uh, data. I can't talk about that because uh, it's, it's not published yet. But we have very nice preliminary data that patients which which have atrial arrhythmia that they have significantly more of these blue cells than patients which undergo operation without having arrhythmia. And all these patients are of course, over 65. So all these are old patients. And so they, we, we find blue, blue cells in their atria uh, every time, but we do find significantly more in the, in the, in the uh, patients with arrhythmia. So in this case, yeah, so in this, just to clarify, so in this case, the blue staining is, indicates Cox deficiency as, as well again. Right, it's oversidochrome oxidase deficiency, right. Yeah, I really like that, uh, that paper about <laughs> the deletions in the heart or the Cox deficient cells in the heart, because it shows in a way that even a low number of these mosaic cells distributed in the heart can have side effects. Right, right. And it, but the electrophysiologies are clear. Uh, nice enough, one of the godfathers of, of heart arrhythmia, uh, Stanley Nattel, he wrote a comment, uh, a accompanying comment, and in, it, in this comment, he asks the question, the key question. So are these cells, these single cells with defective mitochondria, are they generating action potentials, which then fire into the normal sinus rhythm? Or are they just eating up the action potential? Are they a source or a sink for uh, uh, electrical excitability? And well, do you have... We're working on that. We're trying hard, but the problem is you can't isolate the cells. So it's hard to work on them. You have to do everything in serial sections on hearts. And we're doing on mice and trying to repeat it also on uh, on human samples. It's pretty cool work because often people were asking, you have so few of those Cox deficient cells accumulating with aging. How could they be harmful? And this would be one answer to that question. Right. Yeah, it's also interesting that the heart accumulates quite a few of these with aging, but some muscles accumulate way more Cox deficient cells. Um, which ones do accumulate a lot and any idea why? Yeah, it's these it's eye muscles, right? I mean, yeah. it's the it's the uh, the lead symptoms of, of mitochondrial disease, ophthalmoplegia. You cannot move your eyeballs anymore. Well, eye muscles are so strange. They are amazingly strange. Uh, eye muscles can change their, uh, um, uh, their their contractile fibers along the fiber. I have they are they are simply the physiology of this muscle is not well studied. All we know is that they are very very strange. 
There are many, many different types of, of different fiber types expressing different isoforms of myosin, so slow twitch and fast twitch. And they have a lot of mitochondria because especially those muscles which just keep your eyes standing, just in, in just in, in place. But then you have fibers which which can which are extremely fast. If you sit in the train and look at somebody who is looking outside into the landscape, you can see this nystagmus, you can see the eyes twitch. So you have it's extremely fast muscles. And then you have very, very slow holding muscles like the diaphragm also. You mentioned that the diaphragm accumulates more. I don't have a paper on that. If you if you have it in mind, I would appreciate if you could send me a, a paper on the diaphragm uh, because I, I, I have missed that, but that would be logical. So all the muscles which have which are uh, a lot of workload, uh, since they are busy all the time, they seem to be especially vulnerable. But you don't have ophthalmoplegia in aging. There's not nothing reported on that. But muscle, muscle is pretty good in, uh, in keeping care of that because of the satellite cells. So only when the satellite cells start to have a problem, and obviously most people have died from something else before before the satellite cells give up. That's why I like our mouse model where we accelerate that using uh, this 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 twinkle, this mutate dominant negative twinkle to accelerate what would happen by natural aging, but in time scales where a mouse is not is dead long 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 not long before. When you looked at the extraocular muscle, that was in humans or human was autopsy samples or no, there was it was also mouse. It was also our mouse. Oh, okay. So we just started to look at that first because it, it's it, it's kind of a key symptom for for delete for deletions for patients who are suffering from deletions. Yeah. So so let me add two comments here. So one about the extraocular muscle. I was also trying to think about it whether it causes age related issues. I mean, we there is some extent of like, you know, eye weakness, maybe drooping eyelids become more common with aging. And I was speculating maybe that's related. Is this plausible? We, 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 we should ask an ophthalmologist. It seems it doesn't seem to be a, a severe problem. It's not yeah. reported as a severe disturbing problem. I mean, the drooping eyelids, you are right. Yeah. And then people go to plastic surgery and have it have it lifted again. You're right. I never thought about that. Yeah, true. But I also couldn't confirm this because my eye anatomy is not good enough for that. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's eye anatomy is good enough except <laughs> you are an ophthalmologist. It's a very special, a very special organ, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, actually, I mean, I quickly googled, and I believe that's true. There are like you know apparently 600 different muscles in the body and you can imagine that there are huge differences as you noted like the eye muscles are very different from other muscles and some of them might accumulate way more deletions and we just don't know but 600 these are 600 different muscles given a name a name by the anatomists but i think we have kind of a let's say half a dozen of different fiber types so type 1 type 2a 2b 2c 2x and then there's embryonic fiber types. It's, it's kind of half a dozen. Eye, eye muscle have their own. They even have their own myosin. So maybe it's more. It's maybe it's ten different fiber types. So all the muscles which have a name like this biceps and this triceps, they're always a, a mixture of different fiber types. But different fiber types are, as you say correctly, differently vulnerable to the accumulation of 
of mutations. And we now think that this is due that all that those fiber types which uh, need mitochondria also take care better of them. And so that, that's why you see the deletions accumulate in the fast twitch muscles, which don't use oxidative phosphorylation as much as the other ones. The problem is that the, the differences get more and more tiny and tiny. So that this makes all these things harder and harder to study. It's not black and white. So could this be related to age-related loss of fast twitch muscle fibers? Yeah. Like that they preferentially accumulate deletions. Yes, yes. That's that's interesting. And yeah, just to return on the topic of muscles, I, I think we, we don't have enough autopsy studies. There used to be like a tradition of doing autopsies in centenarians of very old people, but then we kind of stopped and we may not know a lot of interesting things that are happening. That's my impression. Correct, yeah. Well, I, th I think I think these studies are always described as being descriptive. And so you cannot get them into a super paper, into super journals. If you just describe, if you just compare young versus old, you always have to do something, intervene in modern, in modern biology. And so that's why people stop doing this good old fashioned descriptive biology, which is always the basis for find, finding something new. You just find something, say, hey, that's funny. And you describe it first, and then you start making a whole new field of biology from it. Indeed. So we, we talked a lot about muscle. And before that, you briefly mentioned your work on the adrenal, uh, adrenal glands and the adrenal medulla. Could you remind us what do the adrenal glands do? And like, why is it a problem if they accumulate a lot of COX deficient um, cells? Um, so the adrenal <clears throat> adrenal glands, the, the inner inner mass of the adrenal called adrenal medulla, and it releases adrenaline or uh, epinephrine in, in in English. But I think adrenaline is also fine. And this is when you have a, when you are super stressed, when you're um, super stressed. If you are super scared, super outraged, you are really uh, really in a very bad situation. Then your sympathetic nervous system stimulates those glands to release, to flush your blood with adrenaline. And this makes you ready to, to fight or, or run away. And the, the cortex of the medulla produces hormones, uh, steroid hormones, which regulate uh, the most important cortisone. Uh, so this uh, the hormone which wakes you up in the morning. So when you wake up and you are very sleepy, then be patient in five to 10 minutes, the cortisone will have risen in your blood and then you will feel much better. I always tell myself this every morning. I wait, I wait another few five minutes and then you're fine. And also the uh, uh, aldosterone. Aldosterone is a salt uh, regulating uh, enzyme, uh, steroid hormone. Well, and I, I'm, I, I think, and if, again, if you would look at this, at this publication, uh, it's it's really uh, amazingly scary if you look at an old uh, adrenal gland of a one-year-old mouse, which is not very old. It looks like we have done some amazingly brutal genetic intervention. It really is completely destroyed. The, the whole tissue structure is completely destroyed, and it's full with cells. Uh, in uh, uh, which I have a mitochondrial defect against with this using this blue blue staining procedure. It also uh, it's mostly in the medulla and it also uh, 
infiltrates the, um, the, the, the cortex, but we have not studied the cortex. We have studied the medulla because we think the reason for that is, is, is that these cells produce, uh, produce and store and turn over adrenaline, which is a catecholamine. And during catecholamine turnover, you produce a lot of super reactive molecules with very strange names like you know, it's quinones and quinone radicals. And so that's why that's why we, we, we checked this first while we were working on uh, starting to work on, on Parkinson's on dopaminergic neurons, because it's very obvious you can really isolate it and it's a big, a big organ and it's full with uh, just these cells. And maybe that's the reason why. I mean, I I I, I, I hate to to watch uh, movies where it's too brutal. I I, I loved it to twenty years ago, but now I hate it. Maybe because I cannot mount this stress response anymore. I would love to do this uh, human study with that. Whether old people cannot increase their adrenaline fast enough to deal with a scary situation and whether this is due to a defect in uh, in the adrenal medulla which can be easily checked in vivo by for example by a pet scan you can uh, have you can have radio labeled uh, markers and then just non-invasive you you could you could check the the, the function of the of the medulla but okay that's just a crazy idea and I don't, very probably not going to do it. Well, it's definitely a cool idea, and maybe some of the maybe some of somebody in the audience would like to follow it up. Maybe. And talking of weird ideas, we can maybe uh, come up with some others. I was wondering. So we have catecholamine metabolism in the adrenal medulla and in the substantia nigra, right? That is linked with Parkinson's. But aren't there also other neurons or brain areas where you should have catecholamine metabolism and yes. are yes. they well studied? Yes, there's the so-called the locus ceruleus, which produces adrenaline, which uses adrenaline as a neurotransmitter. And yeah, I would love to study this one, but um, I, we don't. So maybe someone else wants to cross our mice with a locus ceruleus neuron-specific promoter and then express uh, produce deletions there and then check what what happens so also in the brainstem so there are there's but it's not not so many regions in the central nervous system <clears throat> use catecholamines as as neurotransmitters so it's only only a few so it's mostly the the sympathetic nervous system which which produces uh, noradrenaline right someone should check it would be very interesting to have autopsy studies where people systematically investigate different tissues for ETC deficiency. I mean, I know there are studies going back to the 80s, but I don't think there's anything really totally systematic, right? And okay, so this is a problem. The question is, do what could we do in theory to either prevent or maybe get rid of the lesions? Is there anything that you can point out? No, of course, not not really. I mean, I'm, I'm a basic researcher. I'm, I, I would love to contribute something to to human medicine because I'm working at a medical faculty so maybe my our work on the, on the human atria will uh, maybe lead to something new but of course the the key question how can we deal it so my idea would be to to uh, improve the improve the quality control mechanisms and I mean this is done by rapamycin for example if you, if you give rapamycin then you know you stimulate autophagy 
and this cleans up the place and then uh, you have problems over this. This is not new. And then of course we know we cannot use this as a general anti-aging medicine because of all kinds of side effects and we cannot do that. So I think we need, uh, it's it's kind of a very weak argument. We, we need to find new targets. We need to find new targets. Uh, I love very much the new pathway my senior, senior postdoc David uh, has recently published in Nature Communications uh, this mechanism uh, where uh, via the endosomal pathway uh, a part of the mitochondria containing a, a nucleoid with a mutated uh, with with mutations is extracted and then uh, carried to the lysosome and uh, subjected to autophagy but it's not classic autophagy because it's a selective extraction here has produced beautiful electron microscopic pictures. So I mean, we had a uh, we had uh, collaborate. We had we've been talking to to uh, AstraZeneca, with, uh, we, we, which have uh, a huge library of of substances uh, to to uh, screen for uh, for for substances which which stimulate this this pathway. And uh, but we don't we don't have a, a good readout yet. We are trying to find a good readout. You need a very simple readout, something, some fluorescence has to change uh, uh, rapidly and strongly to, 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 to do a large uh, scale screening of a, of a large library. So we are not ready yet, but this is, this is on, this is on the way. Yeah, it would be great. And maybe you can briefly elaborate on that paper about the removal of damaged or, or removal of mitochondrial DNA. Was it shown that this was specifically removal of damaged or like local stretches of ETC deficiency or just the jet? We, we don't know. No, it's, 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 it's damaged. It's, it's specific removal. We, we produce damage either by overexpressing in cells and also in, in vivo, in this case, in satellite cells, uh, this deleter uh, twinkle. Or we use a tidium bromide, and tidium bromide has been used to in dividing cells to uh, to deplete cells from 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 mitochondria to run it run it down. Uh, in tidium bromide in very low concentrations, but but we have shown that, uh, and we have reproduced very very old papers from the sixties and seventies, which people have forgotten, that you really introduce uh, uh, free radical damage you with with the tidium bromide in the uh, in the in the mitochondrial dna and when we stimulate this pathway then the place is cleaned up then you get less deletion you see less deletions and uh, you see less uh, less uh, changes so you can so this pathway can be stimulated by overexpressing uh, uh, important proteins key proteins of the pathway so no reason why we shouldn't believe that we could find small molecules which stimulate this pathway and, and cleans up the place. So this is, this is where I would now put my, a small amount of money on, that this could be something which should be investigated further, which David will certainly do. This reminds me of a discussion I had with Viktor Korolchuk from Newcastle. We were talking about mitochondria and to some extent about the failure of uh, ping parking knockouts in mice to have like really strong phenotypes and like it reminds me that maybe quality control is not just through mitophagy right but it could be also through like very selective and localized removal of damaged either dna or electron transport chain right right 
And I mean, pink parking, that uh, mutations in pink parking causes Parkinsonism, but no other obvious phenotype in the whole body. Although, of course, these patients carry the mutated protein in every cell of the body. This shows that dopamine monoenergic neurons are a real hotspot for mitochondrial DNA damage. So only in those cells, a problem with mitophagy, pink parking-dependent mitophagy, only in those cells. It's, it, it then showed then the, the, the damaged mitochondria, they, 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 uh, they win and they win and then they overwhelm the cells and then you have you have damage. So uh, of course Richard you would hate that, but uh, pink, studying pink Parkins pathway inhaler cells is probably not a good idea because all the 200, the 199 other cell types in our body, as you mentioned, we have two, about 200 different cell types. The 199 other cell types, they don't care about pink and parking mutations. It's just the dopaminergic neurons. Maybe somebody should check at the adrenal gland, at the adrenal medulla in these patients. Maybe they have a dysfunction. Yeah, that's a common problem, as you mentioned, especially with those Ivy League high impact cell biology papers, often people find beautiful pathways in cancer or immortalized cell lines, but they do not really translate. I'm, I'm now in the age where I, I allow myself, I'm famous for the question in meetings when asked, when does this happen in my body? And then very often um, the speakers say, yeah, of course we are completely over, overdoing the situation to find nice effects, but of course you are right. Uh, Studying diabetes by bathing cells in uh, 20 millimolar glucose uh, doesn't really make sense because you and I would be dead if our glucose concentration would be increased fourfold. That would be as we would get into a severe hyperglycemic shock. So, just as a follow up to this um, question on pink parking, do you think other tissues have? Does it mean they have other quality control mechanisms for mitochondria? I think it's it's yeah. There must be other quality control mechanisms, right? And and the pink Parkin is 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 uh, is, is most important in dopaminergic neurons, and other cell types use other like mitochondrial derived vesicles, Heidi McBride's MDVs, and and then of course don't forget about the uh, the. Uh, uh, proteases inside the mitochondria, which take care of damaged uh, proteins and then uh, the mitochondrial DNA repair mechanisms. So you have it on many levels. Indeed. And they're all worth investigating. So we talked about um, rapamycin. We talked about quality control and other ways to remove or prevent accumulation of deletions. I was wondering, maybe you can also comment about the work of Minchuk and Moraz that we mentioned in the beginning, like you can import certain proteins into mitochondria to do like really cool things. <laughs> at least at least they did it in mice now with uh, with upcoming AAVs and uh, generating more and more uh, adeno associated viruses, which uh, which have a certain tissue specificity. Uh, this may really work, but I mean, now we come into a, a general discussion on gene therapy and to my knowledge, gene therapy hasn't really worked very often until now. So whatever disease you want to cure, when you only can cure, when you try to cure it by overexpressing the, the the healthy protein uh, in exactly those cells which express the bad protein, uh, very little progress has been made. But the, of course, this is being pushed forward 
a lot, and I think there are a lot of, of clinical studies, especially in blood in blood cancer, blood diseases, where you where you target cells which are easily reached because they are swimming in blood anyway. So then, whatever you do with your virus, I mean, modifying mitochondrial DNA mutations is then just one step further. And obviously, one big problem has been solved now uh, that you can simply uh, do it by using a protein which can be imported by the natural protein import pathway. So all you have to do is infect your target cells with an, uh, a vector and then uh, have it translated into the important protein, which then modifies the base. So I, I like this work of Carlos uh, Moraes and, and, and Michal Mitchell a lot. It's really, it's really beautiful. It's fantastic work. I've been following it for a very long time. And the only problem, I mean, I'm an aging researcher. And from my perspective, of course, it's very good they can remove targeted like certain mutations so it's, it's it does not generalize to the random clonally expanded mutations we get with aging unfortunately no unfortunately not so then you really have to go one step um, on, on a more complex level and find a, a nucleoid which which doesn't obviously doesn't work properly and uh, uh, Christoph Osman who has been the uh, postdoc with Jody Nunari uh, who's now a, a group leader in, 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 in Munich, he has uh, dubbed this name a, a sphere of influence. So obviously a nucleoid, it's kind of logical, a nucleoid supplies a, a certain area, a certain volume of, of mitochondrial inner membrane with uh, those 13 proteins, and then the rest comes from outside. And so if these, if you have, if, if you have mutated mitochondrial DNA in this nucleoid, then the quality of this region will drop, which may be recognized by a drop in membrane potential. This is obviously, this would be the most obvious uh, uh, explanation that you have a local drop in, in membrane potential. And this, uh, this has been shown by, by Christoph Osman in, in yeast cells, that you really have local drops, lo local differences in membrane potential along uh, along the mitochondria in yeast. So talking about treatments, uh, potential treatments, let's um, stick with this. I read like really cool work about, so there was a trial with mitochondrial myopathy patients, if I recall correctly, uh, subjected to a ketogenic diet and apparently this lysed some muscle fibers containing ETC deficient um, cells. That's very interesting. What do you think about that? Well, I think it was a. It, this was done in Finland, right? Uh, this was a, a, an excellent try, but obviously, unfortunately, biology is more complicated, and we have missed something which which was unpredictable. That you, if you make the cells completely rely on on fatty acids and ketone bodies. Uh, so the, the mitochondria are pushed to their limit uh, that this is not good for them. This is very bad for muscle. So this uh, trial has to be had to be stopped. And it's but it's very it was a very important this was very important work uh, that uh, somebody was brave enough to try and got the ethics per, commission permit to do it and have patience which were. We always have to thank the patients, which are <clears throat> which are ready to uh, to be the, uh, the 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 mice 
in this case. Indeed. However, so I'm trying to see like a silver lining with this study. So the question was, in a way, whether the muscles then will regenerate with healthier mitochondria, or perhaps it can get rid of some other progenitor cells that are ATC deficient, and maybe in the long term, it would be even beneficial. But of course, we don't know. No, we don't know. But I think, but I mean, we, we know from epidemiological studies that, of course, you, you should exercise. You should exercise. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid it will take a long time to, to get to, to have a, an anti-aging pill. But uh, the, 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 the uh, trivial things like don't smoke, don't drink alcohol, uh, exercise, don't sit the whole day and uh, don't eat too, too much fat and or don't eat too much protein. All these things, which are obvious, uh, are really producing, uh, prolonging health span by very complex, by all these complex biological mechanisms we are talking all the time. It's not voodoo, but it's really stimulating all these turnover mechanisms by uh, in muscle by just exercising them and. Uh, of course, diet uh, dietary restriction means uh, stimulating autophagy. So I'm trying to 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 do uh, intermittent fasting. So I, I eat, eat my last uh, lunch at before eight in the in the evening, and I eat my uh, so my dinner, and I eat my my lunch only after twelve. So I try to fast for sixteen hours every every day. And uh, hoping that uh, in, in, in our 15 and 16 in all my cells, the autophagy machinery has been activated and I'm starting to eat up, eat up myself before then I go to uh, our beautiful Mensa here and have, have lunch again. I think this all these things are, are important, but we agree we have to work more because uh, the severe... Uh, problems of the aging society and the demographic changes all this will not be enough and you cannot educate a large population to do that you cannot force them to do that and that's why we need to have interventions and that's why we need to do more research although the question has been answered you we know how to age well if we have good genes of course you know that the saying that if choose your parents well, then then you get old, then you have a guarantee. If you have old parents, then the chances to get old are, are, are high. Um, yeah. Right. Talking about diet and exercise, have you or have other people tried this with the Twinkle Mouse model? Does it help them? That would be a neat idea. That would be a neat, that would be a very neat idea. The problem with our mouse is that the, the phenotype develops so slow. I mean, we really this is really serious aging research. Uh, some, if you do something to a mouse and you compare three weeks and three months old mice, and I call this aging research, I would say not really. So unfortunately, we always have to wait at least twelve months, eighteen months until we get a phenotype. So this is very tedious, very expensive because we have to pay cage charges. These are very expensive experiments, <clears throat> but that would be a neat idea to starve them and see whether then they develop less of these blue cells. I'm going to uh, to give my uh, mice to to the Jack to Jackson Laboratory or maybe to Emma 
the European uh, mouse depository because it's cheaper. They, they only ask you to, uh, they, they will pay the, the, the embryonic freezing, the embryo freezing procedure, and you only have to pay the, uh, the, the, the transport of the, of, the, of the embryos. So I will, I will give this mouse and then everybody, of course, is, is happy to, to use it. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting model. And I think we still need to learn a lot about um, mitochondria and mitochondrial genome aging. So I'm wondering, do you have we missed any potential future technologies or breakthroughs that you're looking forward to in the field of mitochondrial aging? No, I think we have covered the, the two major things, modification, really modification of the, of the genome, because I strongly believe in it. Any kind of aging-related deficiency must be tracked back to uh, an irreversible damage, and this can only be DNA. It cannot be protein, it cannot be carbohydrate, it cannot be lipids, because all these turn over. DNA also turns over or is repaired, but then there's stochastic, uh, there's stochastic changes, and then this doesn't work well anymore and then it, it gets worse and worse and it's it, it but it has to be the primary defect always has to be fixed in uh, mutations of dna in this other less important uh, dna in this other organelle called the nucleus or in the in my favorite organelle the mitochondria so then this modification of uh, modification of uh, of of uh, dna and quality control mechanisms of the products, whether it starts with the messenger RNA or the protein or the whole organelle, or in our case, a nucleoid. So these are the two main things we can think of. That's, that's an interesting point. Actually, I wanted to mention this earlier. So one of the reasons why these theories are appealing is that they're they conceptually make sense and they're very easily measurable. You can not only measure those Cox negative cells, you also know that in many cases, deletions underlie them. And of course, the mitochondrial genome is a very, very foundational, right? And you can measure them and they make sense in the context of aging and they accumulate exponentially, at least in some tissues. So it fits a lot of important assumptions for us. Yeah, I think it was a good idea 15 years ago when we started this whole thing. Right. Um... But something, so one or two last questions. So one thing that I always found slightly surprising about the whole thing is why do some tissues cope so well with having large stretches of dysfunctional mitochondria? I mean, did, did we check all the tissues? I mean, did, did we check enough different tissues? I'm not so sure. For example, liver. Liver is not really just using a mitochondrial diseases being an accelerated aging process due to mutations of mitochondrial DNA or due to mutations in DNA, mitochondrial DNA maintenance genes. Uh, if, if we look at that, liver is, yes, there are liver cases, of course, but it's not a key symptom. Well, liver, for example, liver cells can uh, proliferate. So liver cells can die and be replaced by, by endogenous stem cells. So the, the liver is, a, is able to regenerate extremely well. It's not a regenerating tissue. In some, some bad books or bad, it says it's regenerating. It's not. It's, the cells are terminally differentiated. 
but there's a lot of uh, activity there and it can regenerate. The kidney, for example, is almost, is very, very rarely the kidney, which is really a life. It's one of the most important organs. So if, if you have a, if you have a circulatory shock, it's the brain, the heart, and the kidney, which are perfused until the very end, and all the other organs are completely shut off from circulation. So kidneys are really life. Uh, I think what we underestimate is intracellular acidosis. When we talk about mitochondrial dysfunction, we always think of a lack of ATP. But we should we should think about uh, intracellular acidosis because when if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, you would always increase lactic acid production uh, because you can you have enough glucose coming from the blood, and then you produce lactic acid. And maybe one reason why the kidney is never uh, so uh, so rarely affected is kidney cells are based in in, in fluid on on both sides. Because all the kidneys, epithelial cells, they have the, the urine on one side and they have blood on the other side, like every other cell, but they also have on the, in the other direction, they have also liquid. So they can excrete the lactate like crazy. And maybe that's the reason why they can, they get rid of acidosis and that's why they that they can uh, can survive better and be not very vulnerable. And uh, I think that's that's about it. So I think nobody really has really studied all these 200 cell types. We, we, a lot of uh, interventions are now being done in glia cells. So now mouse, we could express our twinkle uh, in, in, in glia cells and then check what happens. And I'm sure something will happen because you damage the mitochondria. And uh, there will be some neurological phenotype at, at some point. Uh, but this has to be done systematically in all the tissues. I think it's turnover, it's differential turnover, which is probably very, very different in, in different tissues, different cell types. I, I agree that like, we don't know how it looks for many different tissues. I mean, we're starting to get um, data sets where people could look at it, both RNA sequencing and like single cell RNA sequencing, accumulate data sets where perhaps in the future people will be able to find deletions from this, um, from this kind of data, and then we will know more, but right now, we don't know that much about accumulation in different tissues and how they handle that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so my last question, more looking just um, again towards the future, I was like at a talk of Anu Sumolainen in like, um, she's a Finnish mitochondrial researcher. And I found it very interesting. It was the ARDD aging conference. And she, she said, my ambition is to cure mitochondrial disease. But of course, that seems impossible. There are so many different disorders and they're very hard to tackle. But I think it's interesting that she's saying that. But if aging researchers say like, we would like to reverse aging or stop aging, people still think this is like, it's an unacceptable goal, even if it's just a dream. Just, a, I, I think, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I agree, but I mean, it would be nice, uh, you know, you know, the, the, the life history of those centenarians that they are almost always, they're always, always, they are healthy. They're healthy until the very end. And then within a very short time, then they, all the body functions deteriorate and then they die very fast. And I think that's what we want. That's what we, what everybody personally wants for him or herself you want this for your for your relatives you don't want to have your father your mother seeing suffers for suffering for years and then also for the economy that that would be 
amazing and would a lot solve a lot of problems. So, so no, we cannot cure aging, but we can. I'm sure we can cure aging related diseases. And I mean, the the, the common the common pathway is, as we all know, is calorie restriction. If you restrict uh, flies, worms, mice, rats, whatever. Uh, if you calorie restrict them, then you they 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 not only live longer, but their health span has increased a lot. And uh, but you cannot do this because the, you really have to make it. It's very serious, I and mean, you have to restrict yourself by thirty percent or whatever of the calories. And if you, you feel hungry all the time, it's, it must be terrible. There's a there's a human population in Utah, I think. And, they are being checked uh, every every five years, and then this is always published in PNAS. Uh, and and they 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 have been doing this now for twenty years or so. And we don't know yet uh, what their lifespan will be, but their health span is very obvious. I mean, all the all the tests, all the all the body function tests, and the blood values, cholesterol, and all these things. They are super healthy. Their biological age is extremely shifted to being much younger and than their chronological age but this is uh, but if you talk to them then they say this is uh, really bad i'm thinking of eating all the day all day long i'm hungry all the day and it's not you are not happy so this is impossible so we this is not a solution so we need to find something to and maybe it's metabolism uh, uh, which where it comes down to and Maybe it's a restriction of one specific. I mean, Linda Partridge, uh, being one of the directors of, uh, of 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 this of our Max Planck Institute, working on Drosophila, I think she found that the, it's specifically methionine restriction. If you if you if you feed the flies with artificial food, which must be extremely expensive because it has to be it has to has everything, otherwise the flies won't thrive. So it's a completely artificial mixture. And then if you if you reduce the amount of methionine, I think that that increases uh, the the life of the of the flies a lot. Or was it cysteine? I'm not so sure. But it was a sulfur, one of the sulfur uh, containing amino acids. But uh, the uh, problem is that methionine is is, is is one of the essential. So the therapeutic dose will be very difficult if you eat not enough. If you don't have enough of it, then you uh, have a problem because it's an essential amino acid and if you eat too much of it, then this is obviously not good for the body. So we need to find something which replaces fasting, severe fasting. And that is a, a common goal, which all the protein or the aging researchers, whether they are working on the nuclear DNA, on proteostasis or on mitochondria, uh, that's what we all should keep in mind and, and, and try to, 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 to proceed. I think that's a good goal for the future to find something that is more acceptable than caloric restriction. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a pleasure to have you and talk about mitochondrial genomes and potential treatments and all these things. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. This was a great podcast. Maybe now at the end, I can give my perspective on why mitochondrial deletions and this theory has fallen by the wayside. So yes, we do know that mitochondrial DNA deletions accumulate with aging in several tissues. This is a fact. But there are at least two problems if you want to explain aging by this accumulation. First of all, the deletions are barely measurable in bulk tissue and are restricted to single cells scattered throughout the tissue. 
each cell is overtaken by a single type of deletion, a clonal amplification. Well, this is not a problem per se. If we reach high enough levels of deletions in some tissues, if. However, it is not clear if we ever reach those deletion levels in humans that are close to even the low end of what we see in mild mitochondrial deletions. And the twinkle mutator mouse is considered an example where we have a model that is rather healthy, even though it shows deletions in its tissues. Whereas the famous mutator mouse, which does show so-called premature aging, shows patterns of deletion and mutation accumulation that are very atypical for human and mouse aging. This makes for a very complicated picture. Nevertheless, there is one reason why I still consider this theory important. Deletion accumulation is exponential in many tissues. And since the COVID pandemic, most of us know that exponentials can go from harmless to deadly rather quickly. Deletions may not limit human lifespan, although they may, and this is speculation, be a major cause of morbidity in supercentenarians or a hard limit to human lifespan. We will have to deal with deletion sooner or later if we want to live beyond 100 years. That's what I believe. Thanks for listening. I hope you can't get enough of aging science and see you at the next podcast.